Thanks so much for joining us at Vive Church for our podcast. We're currently in our amazing series, Kingdom, Corrupting the Status Quo. If you have a story to share about what God is doing in your life or what God's done for you, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at mystory@vivechurch.org. Welcome San Jose, welcome San Francisco, Palo Alto, and online. Whether you are watching online from the comfort of your bed in California or in Geneva. I was told this morning that someone was watching from Geneva. The Word of God, I believe, is going to speak into every situation. I believe it. Matthew chapter 16, I want to read from verse 13 as we stand. I like to stand for the reading of God's Word. It it reminds me of the authority that it has in my life. And I don't want to take for granted the power that comes from God's Word. But it says this in Matthew chapter 13. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Kind of waiting for the next verse. Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then He asked them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the powers of hell will not conquer it. And the powers of hell will... I need a church to get happy about the Scripture this morning. Now that would be a good place to stop. And usually that's where we kind of pause our reading. But I want to read one more verse because it pertains to the subject of our series and will be the place that we focus on today. It says, verse 19, and... Everyone say, and. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. I feel that God has me on a specific assignment today to really speak into some circumstances and to reveal that ultimately not just preach about breakthrough, but to to kind of show you the keys that you already have so that you can unlock your own breakthrough today. And my sermon title is less of a title and more of a declaration over our circumstances. I'm calling this this talk or this sermon or this preach, I'm making the declaration, I have a key. I have a key. Maybe you could help me preach. Find three neighbours real quick and say, I have a key. Tell them, tell them, tell them I have a key. Tell them you have a key. Say, I have a key. Come on, San Jose. Come on, San Francisco. Tell them I have a key. I have a key. I, I have a key. I have a key and I believe God is going to show you exactly what you have today. God, we ready ourselves for Your Word. God, we sit with a posture leaning in, ready to draw out exactly what it is You want to speak to us. So God, we pray, have Your way. Do Your thing, God. Do what it is that You want to do in our lives. God, You have permission, we pray in Your mighty name. Everybody said, Amen. Amen, Amen. High five, five people as you take your seats. Go for it. Thank you, worship teams. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Amen, amen. Matthew chapter 16. If we consider the context of this passage for a moment, I believe that it will put into perspective the premise 
around the question that Jesus, the challenging question that Jesus asks his disciples, a, a question that is somewhat challenging and confronting all at the same time. And, and in many ways, this section of Scripture is a case study into the way that our, our, our surroundings can either influence the way we see or whether the way we see influences our surroundings. And it's always important to know when reading Scripture that context is key. To have the right context. And what we see here in Scripture in Matthew chapter 16 is the disciples, that they're witnessing an ever-increasing tension that's surrounding the ministry of Jesus. John the Baptist is now no longer in prison. In fact, he's been beheaded. And so there is, there is a lot of pressure around the ministry of and the sermon, really, of repentance. There's an increasing hostility that they're, they're finding swelling around Jesus, not just from the Roman oppressors or the Roman government that they're under, but also from the religious leaders of that time who are putting more pressure on Jesus to perform miracles as proof of His power. And so the disciples are feeling this tension. And in many ways, we see Jesus discern what the disciples are feeling that's evident amongst the 12. And so He draws away to a secluded place to speak with them. A place called Caesarea Philippi, a place some 20 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, isolated, secluded, away from the the pressure, away from the tension, away from the crowds and away from the, the chaos, so to speak, that was starting to kind of press upon Jesus. And in the midst of the pressure and in the midst of the tension, Jesus turns to the disciples and and asks the question, who do people say that I am? Now, I believe that many of us live with a similar tension in life where where there is a contrast between what we know God is able to do in our life compared to what we see happening in our life. Would I be, would he be right in saying that? Would, I, would someone know what I'm talking about when you're reading God's Word, what God is able to do, yet you see your life in contrast to that and you know that God can do miracles, you know that He is able to do some great things, yet you see the state of your current situation. It could create a contrast. To feel pressure, even though I'm meant to be more than a conqueror. And we see this even with John the Baptist. You know, when John the Baptist came out of the wilderness, we saw through this series that he came out with boldness. He, he came out boldly declaring that the kingdom of God is here. Yeah. And, and yet we see a few chapters later that contradicted because that same conviction was now questioned when behind bars. How many people know you can be victorious in one season of your life, yet feel like a victim in, a, in another area of your life? All at the same time. All at the same time. I'm talking about sometimes you feel confident that God's called me, but yet because of having a fear of, of possibly failing, you, you often seem stuck in the same place year after year. You know, I've talked, I get, as a pastor, I get the privilege of speaking to all kinds of people. I've spoken to businessmen who, who can, can seem to be, you know, crushing it and killing it in the, in the corporate world, yet, yet are completely frightened when it comes to fathering. I've spoken to professional athletes who are completely confident in front of the crowds and when the lights are on them, but yet when they're like at home or in the area of personal relationships, they're completely terrified. I'm talking about a contrast. And I think if we were just maybe willing to all get a little vulnerable today, I believe that each one of us would have areas in our life, like John the Baptist, where we feel conflicted and possibly even imprisoned. But can I 
tell you that Jesus made His purpose clear for coming to earth? He, he made it very, very clear. In fact, that He said this when He first stepped onto the ministry scene. We see that He, he went to the temple and opened the scroll of Isaiah. And He went to the point where it, it says in Luke chapter 4, it, it says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is what Jesus says. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for He has anointed me to preach the good news. He says that He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners to, 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 and recovery of sight of the blind and to set the oppressed free. He said, I have come to bring freedom. This is the framework with which Jesus framed His ministry. From the offset of His ministry, He said, those who are feeling imprisoned in life, those who are feeling captive to your conditioned or maybe imprisoned by people's perspective, no matter what it is that you find yourself facing in life, Jesus says, I have come with a key that will set you free. Oh, I'm going to need you to, to help me preach like you're the 9.30 service, like you're ready to go. So people need some convincing this morning, honey, that, that Jesus has the key to set you free. That He has the key. But I would dare to say that most of the time what we often think we need to find freedom in a certain area must be found in something I don't yet have. Because if I had it, then I'd be free. If I had it, I'd have breakthrough. So it must be found in something that I don't yet have. And I'm very well aware of, of the fact that we, we are well aware of what we don't have in life. I, I, got, I got a microphone here. I like this microphone. They gave it just for me. It's like mine. It's got my name on it. They even put my name on it. Get a little zoom in there. They got my name on it. So, so in case anybody forgets, this is my microphone. And, and I was talking to our worship pastor, Pastor Carly, the other day. I was saying how it's crazy to me how every preacher wants to be a worship leader and every worship leader wants to be a preacher. This is how it works, you know. But, but I'm comfortable and confident with this microphone if I'm preaching. But, but if you change the setting and you said, now, now it's time for you to worship lead, my confidence level would severely diminish. <laughs> Don't laugh at me. You try and get up here and worship lead like Frederick. Yeah, exactly. But it was funny because Pastor Carly was saying the same thing to me. She's like, that's crazy because I'm confident as long as I'm singing, but don't get me to preach. We're so well aware of what we don't have, even to the point where sometimes we're blinded to what we do have. It was 1998, I believe, where, where I was getting to know Kira. We weren't dating yet. We, we weren't a couple. I, I was definitely interested in her. She didn't even know I existed, but... Needless to say, I knew everything about her. I knew her favourite colour. I, I knew what she liked to eat. And I knew what her favourite flower was as well, guys. I knew, I knew it all. And we had some, uh, some African friends in our, in our crew who had, who had recently got married. Was, oh, Africans? We got some Africans? I like Africans. Yeah. Okay, so. And they'd recently had, had a little baby. And, and Kira was holding their little baby so adorable. And I was like, thank you, Jesus, getting a picture of, uh, of, of my wife and mother of my children. I can see it. I can see it before me. Prophetic, gifting. I could see it. And then she... She said a statement that really grabbed my attention. I would listen to every word she would say, but this one in particular, she said, I want one just like this one day. Her African parents said, well, you know what you have to do to get one of these? And she said, oh yeah, don't worry. I'm going to marry a black man for sure. 
I never felt more white in my life. I was like, man, and ever since, I've been, I mean, I've been trying to tan my best. I've, I've been trying to do my best. I've been under the sun, but I just keep peeling. It's ridiculous. How many people know what they don't have in life? You're well aware of the, the things that you cannot do and that you cannot be and what you do not have. And I would even go as far to say that what we do not have frames what we do not see. What we do not have, and even what we see, is framed by what we cannot see. In Matthew chapter 16, we find the disciples experiencing this tension in ministry. From, from the interactions, we, we get the sense that Jesus could foresee that his team was on the verge of retreat. So he takes them away for a regroup session. And, and what we're about to see is Jesus revealing a strategy, or, or better still, a key, that if implemented in your life, will actually be the very thing that will unlock the breakthrough and the, and the freedom that you've needed in your life if we put this strategy in play. And in verse 13, Jesus, we see, poses the question, who do people say that I am? The disciples, they, they didn't respond with what was the popular opinion at that time. There had been some rumours swelling around who Jesus was. The miracles were undeniable. What people saw Him do, the testimonies, people who had been deaf and blind for, and lame for, for their whole life and now walking and, and doing crazy things. So what Jesus was doing, the works of His hand were undeniable, but, but there was a lot of question around His identity. And so there was a popular opinion. And as He asked this question, the disciples, they, they respond with just a couple of the most popular ones. They say, well, you know, some say John the Baptist. And some say, Elijah. And at first you can kind of think, well, that's a little bit strange because John the Baptist was circulating around the same time. In fact, John the Baptist baptised Jesus, so how could they be the one and the same thing? But, but if we actually study Scripture, we will identify that their response is not as terrible as we think. Because let me contrast the two. John the Baptist, for starters, you have, you have John who was actually the cousin of Jesus their mother, their parents, their mums were sisters. And so there would have been some kind of physical resemblance and likeness between the two. They, they both kind of spent time in and out of the scene, into the wilderness and back on the scene. They, they both ministered and had a message of repentance. Both of them had a band of disciples and both of them really frustrated the authorities. So you could be forgiven in some settings to think that maybe this is John the Baptist. But if we actually were to listen to, to, to what John did, we would know that John never did any miracles and his message was always to make the one, a way for the one who was to come. Jesus, however, never pointed to anybody but himself. Say, I am the one. Then we've got Elijah. Now, Elijah, you kind of think, well, Elijah was like an Old Testament prophet. How, how is it that they think that this could be Elijah. Well, you've got to understand that the last Old Testament prophet by the name of Malachi prophesied 400 years earlier, and he was the last one to prophesy anything on behalf of God for 400 years, prophesied that, that, that the, the spirit of Elijah, that Elijah would return to make a way for the Lord. So you had the whole Jewish nation who were waiting for Elijah to return. They were looking forward to this day for Elijah to hit the scene. But, but what they missed was the fact that, that God was not looking to reincarnate Elijah, but He was going to fulfill the prophecy and the ministry of Elijah and the fact that John the Baptist and Elijah were actually the same person. Not physically, but John the Baptist was a fulfillment of Elijah's ministry. He came to make a way. And you know what's funny? The similarities are ridiculous. If you actually study Scripture a little bit, 
You'll see that both Elijah and John the Baptist spent time in the wilderness. They both wore animal skin and leather belts. Their diet was the same of locusts and wild honey. These guys were like, like similar. But yet they were both making a way. And Jesus didn't ask this question for His own information to the disciples. He asked it to help them unlock a deeper revelation. And so what we see in verse 15 is we see that Jesus dials the question in a little bit more. He says, I hear what people say, but He says, who do you say that I am? And out of the 12, it's Peter who responds with, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. This is recognised as the, the most pivotal conversation in the entire Bible. This conversation right here. Because it's important how you see things. It's important what you know. It's, it's important how you realise things. I mean, you could just identify Jesus as, as a good man or you might know Jesus as a historical figure, but unless you know Him as the Saviour of the world, then nothing will change your life. But God came on the scene to let you know, I am not just a good man. I'm not just amongst the prophets. I am none other than the Saviour of the world, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one who will set you free. And for, for Peter to realise this, actually makes this the most pivotal and, and important conversation actually recorded in Scripture, where He reveals His identity. Immediately, Jesus then, in response, He actually changes Peter's name, in fact. He says, he says upon this rock, because He changed His name to Peter, which means rock, He says, upon this rock, I will build my church. And let me, let me just give you some, some Bible uh, uh, theology here. What, what Jesus was not doing was now setting Peter up or a church structure so that Peter could be the Pope of the Holy Church. That's not what no, he was doing. He wasn't saying, now, because you're so smart, Peter, I'm going to make you the guy who's going to be the first Pope in a long line of Popes. That's not what Jesus was doing. What Jesus was doing was setting the foundation of the church of a, as a revelation of Him. It's upon this revelation of who He is, exactly who He is. That's what the church will be, foundation, be founded in and built upon. And built upon. It's important. Find a neighbour real quick. Look, look a neighbour in the eye real quick and say, your realisation, come on, you need to find a neighbour. Stand and say, your realisation of who Jesus is begins the revelation of who you is. It's bad grammar, but good theology, amen? The, the realisation of who Jesus is begins the revelation of who you is. It's the understanding that the way I see Jesus determines how I see myself. And a poor perception of Jesus or an incorrect assumption of Jesus will always produce a poor perception of yourself. I can see Him as a good person or... Maybe as my parents' religion, but, but what, does he, what does He mean to you? And who is He to you? Jesus could see that the disciples were being influenced and intimidated by their surroundings. But at the same time, He knew that the very key to unlocking their confidence was actually wrapped up in their conviction of who Jesus was. And so what we see is this, and I want to give you like a little kingdom of God-like clue, if, if this will help you. And I hope you're taking notes today. I really do. I'm, I'm, I'm preaching some good stuff already and I haven't even got to the good bit, but, but, but you can keep writing notes already. And, and maybe you could write this down. Identity always precedes activity. Just write that down for me. Identity 
always precedes activity. In, in, in other words, what I do for Christ always comes out of knowing who I am in Christ. You know, you know since, my, uh, since my daughters could talk, in fact, since like they, they could even spout words, I've been brainwashing them as a parent. It's the truth, I have. I've been brainwashing them. I've been indoctrinating them. I've been telling them what they are. And, and we have a little mantra that we say with me and my girls, whether I'm taking them to school or we're just doing whatever. I'll, I'll just randomly say, who are smoking girls? And they'll hit me back with, smoking girls are loving, caring, confident, and kind. And I'll say, who are they? We're confident, caring, loving, and kind. And they'll, they'll spit it out. Because I know that, that I could try and later in life, try and curb their behavior or correct their behavior. But I would only be doing something that comes out of an identity of who they are. But if I change who they are and I tell them who they are, then their behavior will follow a correct assessment of their identity. I'm trying to help some parents in here. Identity always precedes activity. Now, there is another section or another part to this interaction that Jesus is having with the disciples that we cannot afford to miss. Because in this passage, Jesus connects for us two concepts. Firstly, he tells Peter, upon this revelation, I will build my church. Now, this is in fact the first time in Scripture that the word church is actually used. The word church or, or the word ecclesia, which means called out ones, those who are called out. And it's a concept that would have been completely unknown to the disciples in the context that Jesus is talking about it completely removed from their understanding, yet it would be the very thing that Jesus would commission them to build. And it's the first time in Scripture that we see the word church being recorded and it's being used by Jesus. I like that because that means the church is His idea. The church has always been idea. He was the one who thought this up. He was the one who said, hey, I think it's a good idea that you find yourself in community, gathered around people who can help you, who can encourage you, who can urge you on in life. Not do this in isolation, but do this with somebody else. He said, but upon this, this thing I want to build called the church, it's going to be built on the revelation of who I am. But he doesn't stop there. The following verse, verse 18, it says, and, which is a key word in connecting two concepts, wouldn't you agree? Just some English grammar for you, that if you want to connect two, two concepts, you use the word and. You don't use the word or. He says, and. Very important because these two verses are often used in isolation of each other. He says, I, upon this revelation, you're understanding Peter of who I am. I will build my church. Gates of hell will not conquer it. Then he says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Now, as I said, the problem with this passage is that it's often preached in isolation, right? It's often preached in the context of spiritual warfare and prayer. And in many ways it can be because it does connect the concepts of heavenly authority with earthly authority, you know, whatever you forbid in heaven, forbidden on earth and, and vice versa. So it does really apply to that context. But, but I do wonder, and I'm not trying to diminish that, that, that understanding at all, but I do wonder if what Jesus was actually wanting to do for the disciples and for us was actually connect this to a more practical application for our lives. You don't agree? That just maybe God wants to reveal something practical because this is actually one of the hardest things in Scripture for me, I would say. 
It's taking spiritual concepts and putting them into practical application. Would you agree? I'm going to need some help, Palo Alto. I know San Francisco are digging this. I know San Jose are going crazy right now. And whoever's in Geneva, they're probably loving it too. <laughs> but I like what Jesus does here is he, he knows that the very same vein of Peter's revelation being the foundation of the church is not only that he will build his church upon that, but, but it's your realization of who Jesus is is also the key that I've given you that can unlock the way you see everything. Everyone say, I have a key. key. Let's break this down to a practical level. Because I want to know, not just that I have keys to the kingdom. I want to know how to use them. I want to know how do these keys unlock joy in my marriage. I want to know how these keys find freedom in my thought life. I want to, is anybody with me? I want to know how to actually use these keys. Well, if you could go with me to Luke chapter 15, we're going to find... Jesus telling a mixed group of tax collectors and Pharisees and notable people a parable commonly referred to as the prodigal son. In fact, there's a passage of Scripture where we find Jesus telling uh, uh, several parables, in fact, three stories, all connected together by the same theme of what was lost, what they don't now have. We've got the the lost sheep, we've got the lost coin, and now we've got the story of the lost son. And I want to jump in at, into the passage at verse 11. And it says this in chapter 15, verse 11 of Luke. It says, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, just as a little side note, this is going to help you with the context of what we remember. Context is key. Right, right. The context with the passage, this Already, this story would have already been highly offensive to everyone listening because, and controversial because ultimately in those days, the inheritance only went when the father died. And so the fact that the son is now asking for his inheritance now, he's pretty much saying, Dad, you're dead to me. And so we've got a tense situation around this story. All ears are listening. You've got religious leaders, you've got tax collectors, you've got notable people in society. They're all leaning into Jesus. It says, verse 13, not long after that, The younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into the fields to to feed pigs. This is already getting offensive even more for for the religious leaders of the time. I mean, we're talking about bacon now. And then he goes on in verse 16. He says, He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. This is a clear picture in Scripture of being victorious in one season only to find yourself a victim in another And check out what this next verse says. This is what I want to look at. It says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. Look at your neighbor and say, when he came to his senses. That's a preacher's way of getting interaction. (laughs) Because I don't want this to be dictation today. I want a little bit of dialogue. I want to help this kind of 
come true in your life to help you see some things that you've been so busy looking at what you don't have, but, but God wants to reveal what you've already got, what He's already given you, the very thing you need for your breakthrough, He's already put in your hands because here we've got a story that Jesus tells to articulate the kingdom. In fact, more often than not, when Jesus t- spoke about the kingdom, we were talking about this just this week, the fact that 40 days after He rose from the grave and was talking with His disciples, the Bible says He spoke to them about the kingdom. His message was the kingdom, trying to relate and get you to understand what is this kingdom we're a part of. And so he's talking to this group of mixed bunch of people about about the kingdom of God, articulating it in a lost son, a lost coin, and a lost sheep. And in the midst of it, he says this phrase, this sentence. Now, I've preached this passage and read this passage more times than I can recall, yet I've always missed the significance of this sentence. Because here we have the son at the lowest point in his life. So low that he's actually looking at the pods that he's feeding the pigs and desiring them. That's a low point. That's a, I don't know how low you've been. That's a, that's a low point. And it's in this moment where, where all of a sudden he has a moment of sobriety and a moment in Scripture where the Bible says he came to his senses. A moment where he realised something. He says, how many of my father's servants have food? He says, my, my father's servants, he, he's looking at what he's lost. He's looking at what he doesn't have. Yet he's recalling that even in this situation, back home, his dad had some servants who ate pretty good. And they weren't even a son. He's like, they're servants. I'm a son because they're my father's servants. They belong to my father. Yet I'm still a son. And I like this passage and I love this story, but but for a long time, this story has been labelled the prodigal son. I believe it's been incorrectly labelled because it's not a prodigal son as much as it's prodigal living. And no matter how crazy your living and your lifestyle gets, he's still a son. I'm trying to preach to somebody. He's still a son. I'm trying to talk to somebody who thought you did some stuff that disqualifies you in life. But but God wants to remind you today, no, no matter how prodigal and how crazy and how wild your lifestyle has been, God says, I still call you a son. That the sonship is not determined on behaviour. Your sonship is determined on who the father is and the identity that comes out of that, not your activity. Oh. He was still a son. He was still a son. And so we have the son standing with the pigs, realising that my father's servants ate better than me. My, my, my father's, they're, they're, they're my father's. Hang on, as he's standing in the midst of his mess, as he's standing in the midst of his life, the, the ruin of his life, the situation, the low point, the point where he's realising in that moment, I love that moment of realisation. I love that moment of understanding. I love that moment of sobriety when you come to your senses and you look and you survey the situation and that moment you realise, I'm not living where I'm meant to be living. I'm living a little bit lower than where I'm meant to be living. I've been focused on the things that I don't have. He's probably looking at the fact that he doesn't have any money left and when the money went his friends left too because that's how it happens he doesn't have any food left and he's in this situation realizing that my father's servants my I'm a son and as a son I have access to my father's house can I put it another way he he remembers that I might not have any money I might not have any food I certainly don't have any friends but I still got a key to my father's house. I, 
Uh, that doesn't mean I'm no longer a son. Just because of what I've done, in that moment he realises and he, he comes to his senses and he, he helps him understand that I'm still a son. I, I still got a key. I know I need to unpack this a little further. You know, this week we, we had the hub on Thursday night. The hub is our leadership gathering. All our team from every location, they gather together. It is the craziest thing we do in Vive Church. It is out of control. It's out of control. It was a powerful night. And, and we had the privilege of hearing one particular story on that night from one of the team members that serves tirelessly in our church. In fact, her name is Jenna and she, she doesn't just serve in our church. She, I, I say she serves the service because she, she makes breakfast for the team every single week. She serves in, in my green room and she prepares things even before anybody gets here. That's like next level serving. And, and what we were able to hear is just something that she had actually been through recently and in many ways still going through where she had received a diagnosis of cancer. And at the time, we, we didn't even know any of this. This is how humble she is, that, that she's going through treatment unbeknownst to us. And, and we got to hear from her and, and we had her share. It was a powerful moment where she was sharing about how she was, you know, going through surgery and going through all the things that you have to go through when you got a diagnosis like that. And there was a moment where she was kind of in theatre looking at the reflection and her head had been shaved. They had to do it for the surgery and as she saw the reflection, she realized that she'd lost her hair. And, and she thought to herself, this is a lot to go through for a 23-year-old girl. And I'm like, impact. I'm like, yeah, you're so brave. But then she said something powerful. She said, as I was looking at my reflection, I didn't consider what I didn't have anymore, meaning my hair. In that moment, God reminded me of what I did have. I have a loving Father who loves me no matter how I look. And He is a healing Father and He has power. Remembering what she did have, not what she didn't have, not focused on what she didn't have, but, but focused on what she has. She had a God who loves her. And God spoke to me this week and told me that something that impacted me. And He said, my people are asking for what they already have. He said, my, he said, speak this to your church, Adam. He said, my people are asking for what they already have. You know, my daughters, they, they were telling uh, Kira the other day, they, they said, Mom, we're broke. They're 10. <laughs> and she said, excuse me? They said, we're broke. They had like some cone of ice coming to the school and they didn't have money for it. And Kira said, girls, you're not broke. I don't want to hear you say that. There's nothing broken about you, that you're not broke. And she said, let me help you with your understanding. She said, you may not have money right now, but that's got nothing to do with being broke. It's got everything to do with forgetting who your father is. She said, you've got a daddy who will give you anything you need if you simply just ask for it. And it's not what you don't have, but you've forgotten who your Father is. You've forgotten what you already have. You've forgotten what He's already given you. Jesus said, I have given you everything of me. I've held nothing back. I've held nothing back. 
God has given you everything. He, he, but, but what we don't have often occupies what we think we need, but, 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 but we don't need what we don't have because God has given you everything you need for breakthrough. He said, I have given you the keys of the kingdom like the sun. He, he might not have had food. He might not have had a lot of things, but as long as he was focused on that thing, he was still stuck in the same place. But the breakthrough was not in what he didn't have. The breakthrough was in what he did have. He, what he was, he was a son. He had a key. And I'm here to tell you that you have a key also. You have a key. Look at your neighbor and say, I got a key. Every campus say, I got a key. In fact, why don't you do something right now? Why don't you get out your key real quick? Get out your key. You, I know you're looking at your neighbor. I don't got a key. Oh, find your key. You've got a key somewhere around you. Maybe check under your chair. Maybe check on the side of your on the side of your armrest. Just look right now. You might need to feel for it. You might need to find it, but I'm telling you, you don't know you have it, but I'm telling you, you've got it. Hold it in the air when you find it. Hold it in the air when you find it. I'm trying to tell you, you've got a key. You thought you didn't have a key. You thought you didn't have some things. You thought there were some things in your life that you didn't yet have, but I'm telling you. You have a key. You have a key. Come on, stand in the air and hold up your key. Every location, come on, every location, hold up your key. I'm telling you, you got a key. You got a key. I wanted to give you a visual reminder today to remind you that what you think you don't have, God says, I've given you everything you need for the breakthrough. I've given you the keys of the kingdom. You've been wondering, how do I find joy in my marriage? Romans 14, 17 says the kingdom of God is joy and peace and the Holy Spirit. You've wondered how do I find strength and persevere in the midst of temptation? I love what Nehemiah 8 tells us. It tells us that the joy of the Lord is my strength. You've wondered how do I, how do I get free of the shame in my life? Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The key to your breakthrough has already been given. It's not whether I have a key. You've got a key in your hands. It's how you're going to use that key that matters. It's not just being hearers of the Word, but doers. You can have a key all your life, but you can be still living in the pig pen. You can have access to the Father's house, but be still living in the squalor. But when you realise and you come to that moment of realisation where you come to your senses and you realise God surely would not give everybody else something and not me. If God says that He hung Himself, He he was hung on the cross, stretched out His arms, gave everything, then surely what I need isn't in what I don't have. Maybe what I need isn't what I have. I just got to put it into use. I've just got to begin to unlock this thing. I have given you the keys of the kingdom, whatever, whatever, whatever you permit, release, unlock, will be unlocked in heaven. Whatever you forbid or lock. Some of you are locked up to all kinds of things. You've locked up in your mind. You've been locked up in your mentality. You've been locked up to your condition. You know what I wanted to do? I was talking to Kira about this sermon and and the whole time I'm preparing this sermon, I'm thinking about this illustration. We didn't do it because it would have creeped everyone out, but but, but I thought about getting like this really little cage, you know, like a little dog cage, you know what I mean? And we put someone in there, you know what I mean? And then we lock it and we leave them in there the whole service, like their neck all crinked up and like stuck in this box like the whole time, like, you know, just like nearly dying. And then at the end of the service, we just go, okay, you can come out. And they're like, but I need the key. And I say, hey, it's in your pocket because you've had it the whole time. 
I thought giving you a key would be a little bit nicer. As a visual reminder, no matter where you find yourself this week, whether it's in a family setting, in a, in a financial setting, in a relationship deficit, you've been wondering, God, do I have what it takes to, to find a spouse? Is there something wrong with me? Is there something I don't have? God says there's nothing wrong with you. You have everything that you need. You just need to use the key and unlock, unlock, unlock. You have a key. You have everything you need for your breakthrough. You have everything you need for your breakthrough. God's already given you your breakthrough. You just need to put it into practice. You need to unlock it. You need to apply the Word of God. The revelation is in here. And revelation doesn't just come from hearing. Faith comes from reading and speaking and proclaiming and putting it into practice over your life. As I apply the very promise of God's Word. Is this helping anybody today? You have a key. You have a key. You have a key to lock, to unlock, to stay locked up, to get free today, to get free today. I don't know what your condition is. I don't know what the circumstances is. I don't know where you're victimized, where you're in prison. Maybe it's people's perceptions. Maybe it's in an area in your life that you are too nervous to even admit, and that's okay. But I'm telling you whatever, because the Scripture says whatever. In, in, in my education, whatever meant whatever. That's what I learned. That whatever means whatever. So you could call your whatever out and that means that God says, I've given you freedom in that area. I've given, you have a key for it. You have a key for it. So why would you stay locked up if you have a key? Maybe you're, maybe you're locked up to shame. Maybe you're locked up in regret. Maybe you're locked up in the pain. Maybe you're locked up in unforgiveness. But the Bible says, I have forgiven so you can forgive. And the very point of forgiveness is the thing that unlocks your freedom. We hope you were blessed by this podcast. For more information for service times or for location, or to partner with us financially, visit us online at fivechurch.org.